0: Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 96. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, it's almost 2009 here in the eastern United States, I thought I'd wrap up the final Drabblecast of this year with the Drabblecast Top 10 list of 2008's Most Badass Animals. I ganked many of these from our discussion forums, where Drabblecast listeners are constantly posting weird and awesome crap. So do be sure to join if this whets your whistle for bizarre, sweet animals. So here we go, the Drabblecast Top 10 Most Badass Animals of 2008. Number 10. The Komodo Dragon. This son of a bitch always finds its way into audio fiction podcasts' lists of top 10 badass animals. They grow about 10 feet long, get about 150 pounds, and could definitely take me, even if I was armed with a katana, and that's usually the standard we rate these things by around here. More often than not, rather than coming at you directly, these things drop out of the tree they were chilling out in, they bite you, wait a couple days while the deadly bacteria in their mouth kills you, then sniff you down and eat your corpse, which just makes them even more badass. On the opposite side of the size spectrum, we have number nine, the water bear. Water bears are microscopic, water-dwelling, segmented animals with eight legs. They're a badass because they're basically indestructible. While only 1.5 millimeters long, they can survive boiling, freezing, radiation, liquid nitrogen, the vacuum of open space, the pressure of the deepest part of our oceans multiplied by six, they can dehydrate themselves and stop their metabolism, and not eat or drink for ten years. They thrive all over the world, because, well, everything in the world is their bitch. At number eight, we have the good old tongue-biter, or cymathoa. This is a little marine isopod about as big as your thumb. It enters through a fish's gills and uses claws to attach itself at the base of the fish's tongue, and survives by drinking blood from an artery. Once the tongue has been gotten completely rid of, it attaches itself as the new tongue, and manipulates the fish's food and consumes the free food particles as the fish eats. Totally gross. No matter what's happening in your life right now, I mean, if you lost your job and your wife left you, you can always be grateful that you don't have a parasitic crustacean for a tongue. Moving on, number seven The Dreaded Candy rue, or Vampire Catfish. This is a little fish that grows about four inches long, found mostly in South America, that's been known to swim up and become lodged in the urethras of bathers. Normally it goes up into the gills of fish to feed, but hey. At the end of a long day, when all is said and done, a urogenital canal will do just fine, thank you very much. One more reason to never go skinny dipping in the Amazon. At number six, we have Trichobactracus robustus, the most badass of frogs. When threatened, robustus actually breaks its own bones in its forearm, which actually pierce its toe pads to produce claws straight out of X-Men, not even kidding you. In Cameroon, they're roasted and eaten, Hunters use long spears and machetes to kill the frogs, apparently to avoid being hurt by the claws. They don't know what happens when the claw retracts, or even how it retracts. It doesn't appear to have a muscle to pull it back inside, so they think it may passively slide back into the toe pad when the muscle relaxes. Or maybe it just stays out permanently, rendering the frog an unstoppable carnage machine. Speaking of which, at number five, we have the animal I am most afraid of. The toe biter, or giant water bug. This is a big-ass cockroach-looking thing that rests at the bottom of lakes and stalks fish, when it's not taking down ducks at the top of the water, or flying around above water and eating squirrels, or getting into your swimming pool and going after you. They hunt on land, water, and the air, and they have a long proboscis which they latch into you, Starship Trooper style, to digest and suck out your warm, viscous yum-yum. Ugh. Moving on to the warm and fuzzy critters at number four. Mind Control Parasites. There are several of these little fellers out there, the most notable probably being the lancet liver fluke. The fluke spends its adult life in the liver of a cow, where it lays its eggs, which are excreted in a steaming bowel movement and eaten by snails. The snail tries to defend itself from the larval parasites by walling them off into cysts and excreting them into the grass. The second intermediate host are ants, which use snail slime trails as a source of moisture. The ants swallow the snail cysts loaded with hundreds of juvenile lancet flukes. There, the young flukes take control of the ant's actions by manipulating its nerves. As evening approaches and the air cools, the infested ant is drawn away from the other members of the colony and upward to the top of a blade of grass. Once there, it clamps its mandibles into the top of the blade and stays there until dawn. Afterward, it goes back to its normal activity at the ant colony. You see, if the host ant were to be subjected to the heat of the direct sun, it would die along with the parasite. So, night after night, the ant goes back to the top of a blade of grass until a grazing animal comes along and eats the blade, upon which the lancet flukes are now in a new cow to continue the cycle. Da-da-da-da-da! At number three. A creature straight out of a first-person shooter game, the Magna Pinna. This is a giant elbowed squid that Shell Oil scout cameras came across in the deep-sea vents. They have been known to get about 25 feet long and drift along the ocean floor ominously, miles down, waiting for the stars to align so that they can reclaim their seat at R'lyeh. At number two, we have another deep-sea Lovecraftian nightmare, the Siphonophore. I can't begin to tell you how freaky this thing looks. You've got to do a search for it on your own, or go to our discussion forums. This eerily fantastic creature appears to be a single large organism, but is actually a colony of numerous individual jellyfish-like animals that behave and function together as a single entity. The individual units all share the same genetic material, and each perform a specialized role within the colony. Some siphonophore species can grow up to 130 feet long. The one I saw looked like a giant gelatinous Christmas tree sprouting from an unholy chandelier with four or five giant squid attached to it and a hundred jellyfish tentacles hanging down, and I'm pretty sure it was throwing up a gang sign. Old ones represent, biatch. And finally, that leads us to number one. I'm not even going to be dramatic here. This is the Drabblecast. You know it's going to be a colossal squid. These things grow 50 feet long, take on sperm whales, and have sex by stabbing their hypodermic penis needles into the skin of mommy squids. Even if I was armed with a katana, they could easily take me. So, you know, they also pass that test. So there you have it. The Drabblecast Top 10 Most Badass Animals of 2008. Now how about a 100-word story? Stories exactly 100 words are called drabbles. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble is called Any Day by Shane Shannon. Shane recently had a Drabble appear on our show that was well-received called Ancient Apple Tree. Visit him over at (sighs) yonderman.com. If you want something done right, sometimes you just have to create a steam-powered robot army to do it for you. Not that I don't have loyal followers to do my bidding, but some things are best left to robots. Plus, watching a robot army at work is absolutely inspiring. The way they destroyed the scores of zeppelins sent to hunt me down last year, it almost brought tears to my eyes. I feel more comfortable around robots anyway. People always end up talking about love, mercy, and goodness. Give me a robot's blank stare and mechanical heart any day. Our feature story is called Lueck and Sarah by Samantha Henderson. Samantha lives in Southern California with corgis and rabbits. She also has a lovely family, works as a church office coordinator, and writes fiction and poetry upon occasion. You can find out more about her and her work at samanthahenderson.com. We've featured her work here before in the Drabblecast, episode 89, Starry Night, and we're happy to have another one of her stories this week. So, without further ado, Lueck and Sarah by Samantha Henderson. 1. The Tower of Jewels. They weren't alive and growing like the crystals in the undercaves. They didn't sing like the exiled Azurite. But there were a hundred thousand of them hanging on the tower. That rose shining. Countless Bohemian crystals. Red, blue, green, white. Clinking together like a song. Bohemia. It was on the other side of the world, they said. But Loweck couldn't shake the idea that it was through the world, past the undercaves, the exiled realm. The fires within. It was late afternoon, and the orange sky set the tower afire. Lueck didn't like the sun, no Lemurians did, after the loving darkness of their own tunnels and caves. But sometimes it managed to strike beauty out of the strange, scabby surface of the earth. Since the emergence, they'd all had to learn. Humans, certainly but mostly the Lemurians. Lueck adjusted the smoked glass protecting his eyes and saw a girl looking at him. She must have been nine or ten and was dressed in a white gown somewhat out of place with the garb of the other humans. Suddenly, she showed her teeth in a feral snarl and Lueck backed away, startled, and then realized... She was smiling. It was hard to get used to that. Two. The Child Hatchery. (coughs) That woman, said Sarah, has come to see the babies every day this week. Lueck nodded, taking her word for it. The premature human infants in the incubator nauseated him. He didn't understand why so many lined up and paid money to see them. My cousin's child was born too soon, Sarah had said, brushing at the wrinkles in her out-of-fashion dress. It died, and she did too, a few weeks later, of bed fever. They all used to die. She leaned against the wall, watching the lines snake by. Watching the woman in dull pink, the woman that came every day, heavy set and eyes permanently smudged as if by tears. I don't see how any of you live at all, Lueck broke forth. Fragile and thin necked and raw. My swarm mother made us go in and see them, and I thought I'd faint. They look like worms, raw pieces of meat, wrapped up like. Chocolates? Sarah nodded, unoffended. Fragile, she repeated, tasting the word like a chocolate baby. 3. Mabel and Fatty The man was tremendously fat, bigger than most humans Lueck had ever seen, but he was graceful, moving with a delicacy that suggested the buoyant, The woman sat in a chair behind the cameras and laughed at him. I never saw a movie, said Sarah, rare longing in her voice. Lueck saw one of the men who had been adjusting the reflectors walking towards them quickly, making calculations on a sheet of paper. He moved out of the man's way, but Sarah wasn't watching. The man walked right through her. She dissolved and reamalgamated when he had passed. The woman in the chair laughed again at the fat man, her voice bubbling like melted silver. 4. The Court of Abundance. Lueck's swarm mother was in charge of the Lemurian exhibit, and he was proud that she'd been chosen. With the help of her latest maturing swarm, she'd build a replica of a home cave, a communing passage, and a crystal den. The humans were especially taken by the crystals, their movements and their random fragments of song so dissonant to Lwek's ears this close to the sun. Many looked closely and spoke politely to the Swarm Mother and spoke cheerfully of the future, of interaction and mutual learning and the benefits of exchange to both species. There was the optimism of new minted empire in the air. But some looked darkly at the Lemurians, And spoke as if the emergence had caused the earthquake, instead of vice versa. Lueck wanted to tell them that his people had died too, just like Sarah had, although they didn't haunt him like she did. He wanted to tell them of the caves destroyed, the crystals crushed, and songs lost forever. But he saw in their eyes the same look he saw when some humans stared at the fat, graceful man. Anger, And a wish to do them harm, as if their very existences marred their world. Once, when one seemed friendly enough, he tried to talk of Sarah. The human woman seemed startled, but not afraid. But later, he saw her watching him from across the great building, hatred in her face. 5. The Palace of Fine Arts The Swarm Mother said they'd leave the exhibit and its nascent crystals as a gift. Lueck thought perhaps she meant it as a reproach for something that hadn't happened, but would, eventually, if they stayed long enough. She wanted them gone, back through the earth crack the humans didn't know about, well before morning. He tried to tell Sarah... But she was staring at the searchlights that illuminated the Tower of Jewels. He could see the bits of glass glitter through her body. Shh, she said when he tried to tell her he was going. I'm listening to the glass. The tinkle of glass chipping itself drifted on the breeze. Lewek had nothing else to offer. A dead girl. He joined his swarm mates as they passed in a silent mass, past the naked weeping statues of the Palace of Fine Arts. One statue was plump and clothed in dirty pink and wept out loud. The woman who went again and again to see the incubator babies. As she cried, almost silently, she watched the Lemurians pass by. Lueck tried to ignore her, but the subvocal scratch of her quiet weeping followed him to the earth crack, through the surface tunnels, and down to the depths of the nethermost cave. That was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Time for some quick story feedback, then I've got to go ring in the new year by taking everyone's money in a poker tournament. A couple weeks ago, we ran a story called Gifting Bliss by Josh Roundtree. This story got a lot of praise. Spiro said, Best Drabblecast ever. Amazing story, amazing songs, perfect mix of Spinal Tap slash VH1 satire that enhanced an already great story. Izzy said, rather dramatically, Oh my god, I swear to god, the story was so good my arm fell off while I listened to it. I loved it. Camo Blamo said, I really felt for Jason. As another J-dude once said, The poor will always have with you. It doesn't matter how much you care or how much magic you throw at society. All you do is create expectations rather than really fix anything for good. A lot of folks compared it to Spinal Tap, but Kahama said, Rather than thinking of Spinal Tap, I kept thinking of a sci-fi fantasy version of Nirvana. I mean, gifting bliss? bliss as Nirvana, an angst-filled early 90s guitar-playing musician in a three-man band creating a cult-like following, people treating the guy like he's a messiah and calling him the voice of a generation even though he's singing unintelligible songs about a mosquito and a beetle or a sasquatch savior, offing himself in the mid-90s because he felt like people just wanted the magic instead of understanding what he wanted them to take away from the music. I don't know, maybe I'm just a product of the grunge years, so I see everything as having some relation to Cobain, another legacy of his magic. Glad everyone seemed to enjoy the story. I was pretty stoked to have a medium to inject tidbits of bizarre songs into, and to rock out some old-school Sinead O'Connor. Anyways, that's all for this year. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means you can share it all you like, just don't change it or sell it. You can help support the Drabblecast and keep us paying authors for their work by clicking one of two donation buttons on our website, one time, or a $5 a month subscription. We greatly appreciate it. Have a happy new year! Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, that sometimes you just have to create a steam-powered robot army.